Brent. Hello, Alan. We are back for episode, I don't know, I have six, oh, 69. 69. I had a six and a question mark up on the whiteboard. It was really close. If you had just <laughs> finished just had to, the loop. Just had to finish the loop. Got rid of the dot. How you been, Brent? I'm doing super. How's that for a convincing answer? That's a that's an awesome answer. So <laughs> I have. How I'm, about you? How are you? <laughs> You're such a <laughs> worst uh, co-host ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, <coughs> I may have mentioned this before. <laughs> Not drink. for a drink. <laughs> I do have coffee. Is that so, the loophole? If we just say may. My dad is uh, up there in years, had a few strokes. He pretty much can't do much on his own. But he stays with my brother and my sister-in-law about 48 weeks a year, 49 weeks a year, sometimes longer. So it's the least I can do to offer to take care of him for a few weeks while they go back and visit family. So I did that uh, for the last three weeks. I was... I like he mostly just naps in his chair. I make him some food, hang out with him a little bit, and I worked from home. I got a ton of crap done. I totally got cabin fever by not interacting with real people. <laughs> uh, so much of my team is remote that only the local team, like, it made any difference to not seeing me around. Yep. I don't think anybody else even noticed. <laughs> but it's weird. I uh, I don't know if I could do. If I could be a remote work, I know companies like Zapier are every employee is remote. They don't have an office anywhere. And I was thinking, I don't think I could do that job long term. I could do it on a contract basis. I could do it for a month, two months, maybe at the most. But one thing I've learned is just I need and I'm an introvert. But I do need a little bit of interaction, I think, a lot. Maybe just to get ideas or to uh, I, I I can't quite explain it yet, but you're in, you're in the learning. you're in the knowledge trade, and if uh, you don't have relevant knowledge to trade, and that's give and take, uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me that you'd kind of go a little bit crazy. I do think. You know, you mentioned one or two months. If you actually made it to three months, you'd be golden. Because it, I think it maybe, takes about three months for a pattern. Yeah, you, I, w- I would get a routine down. One thing I can tell you, though, I worked uh, remotely once before. This is dec- uh, dec- not dec- quite decades ago, but maybe maybe a decade ago. Maybe seven or eight years ago at Microsoft, I was long story I won't share, but I ended up working remotely for about two weeks. At that time, it was much, much worse because Slack – or whatever you're, if you're using Microsoft Teams, the, for the Microsoft folks, uh, <laughs> but Slack for everybody else, just a lot more, a lot more of that hallway communication. And like I said, my remote team had no idea I was even out of the office, but we were able to say pretty good communication, and that helped. About three years ago, one of my employees, her father was ailing, and she asked if she could go to China. And uh, work remotely for a month. I said, sure. Um, to this date, um, the manager I had at, at that time still does not know that she spent yeah. a whole month in China. <laughs> and I was, I was actually pretty damn productive. My day was spread out. It was weird because I ended up working. I probably worked. I was probably near my computer 12 hours a day, getting in an eight-hour day. 
because of other distractions. But I got a, just a ton of crap done. So it's really good from that perspective. But I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, how much of your time do you spend doing your own tasks? In versus- soul-sucking meetings? <laughs> a lot. That wasn't, that wasn't my question. But I forgot I forgot what a culture of meetings is like. So um, thanks for reminding me. Yeah. How much, and, and given that, this is a hard question to answer, but how much of your time do you spend on tasks versus managing your team? That can be one-on-ones with them or thinking about their career or the work they're doing. What's, what do you think? Just uh, ballpark it, it. it. Like this week, it's mostly on the task front. I would say in any given week, I probably spend maybe 30% on the the people career growth stuff because usually my time is spent between my people putting out uh, random fires. One of the one of the interesting consequences of being on a data science team, and I, I didn't realize this. Um, beforehand, but one of the things that I learned is unlock. So people want to treat us like a regular dev team, where we, you build a six month plan, and, and um, uh, if you don't stick to it, you suck. The that sort of philosophy that you normally get with a with a dev team. But we have to operate at the speed at which the the business needs to make decisions. And so that model just friggin' doesn't work. And so a lot of the contradictions we get is a lot of fire drills come our, pl- our way, and we have to figure out how we can best effectively help make the decision, uh, even though we lack the six months of infrastructure that would be ideal. <laughs> and then lastly, strategic thinking. In particular, nowadays, um, I'm thinking through, all right, what's the next low-hanging fruit that no one's really gotten into that's that appears to be a business problem as well as how the hell do i shut down these fire drills so uh depending on the week um the my balance changed very rapidly i want to remind the two of the three listeners still listening that that was uh just an answer to a ratio question but oh, thank you 30 <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. No, I, I, I just I didn't want to say just thirty because thirty sounds low, yeah, I and know. I wanted to explain why. No, no, no I, get I get it. I get it. I'm just giving you a bad time. The reason I brought it up was I think I spent uh, more time on. T- I still did all my one on ones. Still helped solve some problems outside of one on ones. Ha- answered a lot of Slack questions and normal manager stuff. But I think I probably spent more time on tasks in those three weeks than I have in any other week at Unity. Usually it's a lot more, because then again, managing your team, there's just a lot of uh, interaction with developers around the uh, company, especially in the Seattle office, uh, sometimes interviews and uh, just those other things. There is a story, uh, and I'll shorten it for the podcast. There's a story I often tell my mentees. Are you can tell a story? I'm gonna run to the store real quick. I'll be back. Yeah, um, just yeah, I'll, 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 I'll let Thanks. you go. So back when I was still uh, uh, part of a Dink family, dual income, no kids, my wife uh, worked at as a apartment manager, and she had Sundays and Mondays off. So I went to my management and I said, "Hey." 
can I have Sundays and Mondays off? And uh, I kicked ass. They said, yes, this is generally the bar. And one of the things uh, for the period in time where that was occurring, and I think it was close to six months, I noticed that generally I got a darn close to two weeks worth of productivity in one week. <laughs> and and so when I came into work on Saturdays, there was no one there to context switch me, interrupt me. I would just grind it out. And it turns out me me not being there on Monday really had no impact on the rest of the week. So I would get That's interesting. Yeah. Um just that one day. I when I was a sink, uh single income, no kids, I would Often, uh, Microsoft uh, turns into a ghost town uh, the last three weeks of December as people realize they haven't used their vacation, they don't want to lose it, and kids get out of school. and So there's nobody there. I would work often, those, especially that week between Christmas and New Year. Oh, my yeah, God, yeah, yeah. the shit I would get done. It was <laughs> – I can't believe – I can imagine because I saw it, but I still can't. Looking back, I can't believe like at the end of that time, like oh my god, I did holy crap! It is really um, and my the brain decision was, to my work brain or was not. Younger, I could fit more in it, so I could. I just had this. Uh, the decision to work or not during the holidays is really a no lose. There's no yeah. way to lose. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I I enjoy taking that time off now, but. Oh, my goodness. That was, yeah. If you have already done all of your Christmas shopping, then, yeah, you should work. <laughs> That's generally not the case for me. I need that. I need the two weeks off because uh, um, I've already, I've generally in the middle of November, I'm like, okay, this person, that, this person, that, this yeah. person, that. But then... Um, I changed my mind later, and I procrastinate, and so then I need the two weeks. This has occurred the last five years. Play the tangent theme song now. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have one. No. Do you know what tune we do have? I do. You do. Uh, Mailbag! We have a little backlog of mailbag questions. I thought we'd... Well, three, but I thought we'd talk about those. Okay. Because <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> oh. All right. Why don't you I, get through I, question one? Nah, not quite ready yet. Okay. So it's good to be back. Having that, uh, we, you may have noticed those of you subscribing going, oh my God, what happened to AB testing? They haven't had an episode in a month. I took a week, we took a recording off while I was taking care of my dad. We are back. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Question number one. All right. This is from uh, Camille. The subject is, how can I start work as a tester? And here is the message. Hello. I'm 33 and working since forever in the logistic industry. I don't know what that is. A few days ago, I came across this job offer as software tester. I started to – I'm going to fix some slightly broken English here. Uh, I have one thing on my mind. I have to try and change my industry and become a tester. 
I found ISTQB certificate, and right now I am learning, working, and gaining information about this profession wherever I can. Today I found your podcast, AB Testing, that's us, and listening to it at work. One thing that disturbs me from your number 26 podcast, yes, I love that one, <laughs> is that ISTQB is a not very good piece of knowledge for a good start as a tester. Uh, maybe not direct, we'll talk about that in a second. I am planning to start from that anyway because this is big advantage in the market, at least in my region. And I'll have to try and find some company which will hire me without any practice except certificate and some theory. I have to find company, pe- company with people like you that want to be someone's mentor to teach me the best. Hire me! <laughs> <laughs> that is. Thank, thank you for the message, Camille. Uh, can't hire you yet, uh, but what I can do along with my buddy Brent is give some advice. Yes. What advice would you like to give? I would like to say, and Brent and I, and as many others do, we made fun of the ISTQB test because it's a little, uh, the questions are a little on the ridic side, I think. (laughs) And there's not a ton of value in the knowledge. What you need is the practical knowledge. However, there are many places, especially in Europe, where having that, certification can get you in the door. I do think, and before Brent jumps in, one thing I worry about is I'm, uh, my spidey sense tingles with the ISTQB only because I see it. I'm not sure if it's a benefit to testers, the testers or more of a benefit to the people running ISTQB who charge a big chunk of money to take their class and at the end of the class to get your certificate there's a little bit of I have some queasiness there that bugs me so I think the answer to that question is entirely market driven right um, you have more familiarity than I do on on the European tester testing market we have several listeners that could probably comment to this mm-hmm. better um, if you look- better than I, I'm thinking of you, Patrick. The thing is, so from from outside looking in, ISQ or ISTQB appears to be a barrier reducer, meaning in in a testing market, if you have this, uh, you can you can. Reduce the friction towards landing one of these yeah. jobs. And, that's, and you're right, much more true in Europe, although I think less true than it was a few years ago, but still very true in Europe. Uh, I rarely see a U.S. job and never see a U.S. job that I would recommend to anybody that requires an ISTQB certificate. And I think even most American managers, at least, te- uh, people running test orgs, don't care. They don't. Um, what we heard is... 30 years old, they're in the logistic industry, they're considering doing the ISTQB, I think you should do the ISTQB uh, um, because it again, I, it does, from what I observe, it is a friction reducer. Yeah, I'm, I'm is not, it I'm going to... I agree. It might, so it's probably going to help you get an interview. Um, to the best of my knowledge, it may even be help you get a job, but the best of my knowledge is not necessarily going to help you keep that job. Yeah, I would recommend. I 
again, I think I have the same advice. As much as I've spoken out against ISTQB, I think in switching industries and getting sort of a basic lay of the land might be a good idea. I would also go read – I mean, you obviously have scoured the internet and gone to the darkest corners in order to find our podcast – so on the way, maybe you found sites like ministryoftesting.com, which have a lot of great information. A lot of testers from Europe. It's headed by Rosie Sherry, in, who's in Brighton. Uh, I should mention, I'm going to Brighton in March. I'm excited. So in addition to the ISDQB, look and see what else is out there. Keep on learning. Try things out. There are testing challenges. Talk to other testers. Find ways to interact. If you have that seeking learning mind, and you can use ISTQB to get your foot in the door, you might have a I do pretty think good shot as a software tester. One of the things that I do think, uh, so they, the person's mentioned they're seeking a mentor in this space. I would reach out to the Ministry of Testing. Um, that's much more closer to a relevant um, market for, for them than we are. Yeah, I think it's becoming... And then see if there's resources... Um, there's a lot of, you know, um, test meetups. Uh, -hmm. Maybe there's one nearby. I bet there is. Look for meetups. Yeah. So I think, you know, it was funny. uh, As little as 10 years ago, Sticky Minds is probably the best uh, from from software quality engineering, people that run STAR, was probably the best resource for testing information. It's still a very good resource, but I can't think right now of a better resource for software testers than Ministry of Testing. That is not a paid endorsement. Not even, it's just an endorsement. I can't think of anything else. Of course, uh, they aggregate blogs. If you want to just subscribe to one blog feed, they, uh, there's forums. There's across, it isn't just like, of course, there's some traditional testing talk there but also some modern testing. In fact, I should mention the reason I'm going to Brighton is to speak at Test Bash in Brighton. I'll also visit the Unity office when I'm there. But my talk, you're going to love it, Adventures of a Modern Tester. Nice. <laughs> nice. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. I got, a little, I got a little smiley writing up the abstract. And I submitted, and uh, I'm, I'm super... Are you going to do crayon excited. cartoons like the, that one girl... Uh, Years ago, oh, uh, with the dungeon I, and the the oh oh, <laughs> I, I wonder if I I should check the schedule. I, Iona, mm-hmm. it was her name. Maybe she'll be there. Maybe she can do the the art for you. It'd be great. I actually gave a presentation to my team internally. There was a weird thing I mentioned before we off the air. I mentioned to Brent that uh, one thing at Unity that I love is I I plant these seeds and the seeds grow very fast at Unity. Sometimes a day later, like, oh, we're doing this. I said, whoa, whoa, okay, okay, it's fine. Yeah, uh, <laughs> go. Several months back, I was working on getting some of the teams to start thinking about working from a zero bug backlog and how that would happen. And I was going to start with one team and show data and move on direction. And then a whole office said, oh, we want to do that. Can you give a tech talk to our devs on how to, on how to do that, how to think about that? I said, I can. <laughs> and uh, I used a lot of uh, uh, hand-drawn pictures in it, just for the heck of it. Uh, it worked out for you. All right. Not what's our thing? next question? Uh, oh, no. look who's rushing things along. <laughs> <laughs> next question. 
This one is from David on the testing pyramid in 2017. Dear Alan and Brent. Oh. Okay. <laughs> what? You mad? He didn't say dear Brent and Alan? No, no, no. It's not I, BA just, testing. I was. Uh, quickly loading the testing pyramid, and that's what caused the uh. All right, go ahead. Go. Did, did it have to push the ponies out of your brain? Okay, yeah. dear Alan and Brent, because now we can run mini GUI tests, graphical user interface, mini GUI tests at the same time, hence get fast response. Do you think this will eventually lead to more GUI tests and fewer unit tests? If the time will no longer be an issue, isn't the depth of testing through the GUI make it a better practice? No. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I understand the logic. I loaded up a image on. I'm looking at lots look, of unit tests. Unit uh, tests. So the testing so pyramid that I loaded up. Oh, yours is huge. What the, uh, it, what the? it says at the base is unit testing, then component testing, then integration, then. Then system, then no. acceptance, then alpha and beta. No, that's that's a stupid pyramid. Yeah, the UI is not the, in the here. The pyramid as at drawn, least UI is not in here. The pyramid as originally drawn. That that pyramid you brought up there. Is I like not this the pyramid. pyramid. That one's stupid. You're stupid. Don't even show that one. All right, the <laughs> pyramid is unit tests, system tests at the very top of the pyramid, GUI tests, and what I have stolen from Google considering how much Whitaker stole from me when he was there, uh, is <laughs> rather than call them unit and system and GUI. Oh, this uh, one. I even think about them as small, medium, and large tests. That is the testing pyramid as proposed originally. So, uh, but for now, forgot where I was. Uh, lots of unit tests, medium amount of system tests, a small number of GUI tests. Let me put it this way. <clears throat> Now that I've talked about everything but the answer, I agree with Brent, which is no weird. Uh, I don't care if you can run a gazillion GUI tests in a second. Well, that'd be kind of awesome. But generally, I don't care because GUI tests are... No, no, no. If you could run a zillion GUI tests in a second, just imagine how many actual useful tests you could run in a second. <laughs> uh I, I think GUI automation is the most difficult to do right and trustworthy is one of the most difficult things to do in software engineering. If you have the flakiness lives in the GUI tests, and maybe it's not flakiness you can control, maybe you can work past it, very difficult. You want to write tests that you can trust, that when they pass, you know the product's working, and when they fail, you know the product's failing. Furthermore... You need a set of eyes on that GUI at least once before you ship anyway. Maybe that comes from some dog fooding at the same time. Uh, just I see no reason. I would rather investigate in those super fast, uh, reliable tests that live lower down the stack, regardless of our ability to parallelize our GUI testing. I even found that in, and Brent's about to talk, but even on, we had on Teams, oh God, right, we, well, Here's the good news. Taught our developers how to write test automation. And they wrote a bunch of really shitty UI tests that were flaky as hell. And they wondered why the system was so gross. Uh, and the system worked fine. Oh, we'll just parallelize those tests. We'll rerun those tests. We'll retry those tests. We'll keep on running until they pass. No, they're 
fragile. And with that fragility, you, you end up not trusting them. And when they do fail, it's a real product bug. Maybe you don't notice or because it's a broken window theory. Just no. I do not support writing more GUI tests just because it's easier. Brent, you may speak. Thank you. So the pyramid, as I have loaded it up, says at the very base is unit tests, then followed by acceptance tests, then followed by GUI tests. Now, in this particular case, I'm going to choose to interpret acceptance tests in language that we used to use, which is the BVTs. Mm. From my experience, all of the bugs happen at the integration layer. GUI tests, sure. You could write a whole bunch of GUI tests, and if you had a, a full, complete suite of GUI tests and Dev does a check-in, you will be able to fail a bunch of tests uh, if they do a bad check-in. And Dev won't have to do the unit test because you know that the test failed. Um, now, let me tell you a story. Years ago, about 15 years ago now, I joined a brand new team. I'm not going to mention the team. Um, it's now yet another Microsoft product I worked on that no longer ships. Um, not Zoom, though. Um, which is official now. Uh, did you hear about uh, Groove dying? Yes. Yeah. Oh, 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 <clears throat> may I tangent size? Yes. It is A-B testing. One of, my, one of my predictions, one of my rants from years ago finally came true, only after spending a few more hundreds of millions of dollars on it. Windows Phone is dead. Uh, I think that was announced several months ago. Maybe internally. Maybe, maybe yeah. internally. Windows Phone became officially dead to the public just a couple of weeks ago. And I wasn't even happy or it's like about time. It's like... It just, it, like, yeah, I told you that when I was working on that stupid science project. We should just stop making this thing. This is dumb. It was just, it was a uh, sunk cost fallacy yep. personified. And thank goodness. Anyway, go on. So I joined this team, and they had uh, run for six years shipped three versions of the product and had never shipped with 100% BVT passing in that six years' time. This was a hard problem to them. They did not understand what was going on. Um, management thought automation was just completely useless because they couldn't figure out this problem. Mm -hmm. And Again, a, a BVT is a build verification test. It is uh, in today's world, it would be somewhere between an integration test and a unit test. So more complex than a unit test, less complex than an integration test. Now, at this point in time, I had never, ever, ever, ever encountered a team that didn't have BVTs uh, passing at least once a week. And this is a team that had shipped three versions it's so funny. You told me it was 15 years ago, but yeah. it sounds like a lifetime ago. I just it I <laughs> I can't believe we lived through that without killing ourselves. I've noticed that as I'm getting older, t 
time appears to be passing by faster? Maybe. And this goes back yeah. to, uh, to paraphrase something you've said previously is I think today I worry way more about quality than I do about testing. Yes. And I, I've this is an example of that. We were worried about the testing. Well, so the team was – I asked to take on this as as a project. I found it fascinating. Like it is somehow I knew up front this team had way overcomplicated their BVT pass. Like to to the best of my knowledge up until then, it was nearly impossible to get BVTs into this type of state. Anyway, I was shortening the story what I went and researched and I discovered exactly what was going on. They had designed their BVT suite to essentially be what the person is asking us on on this question. They had abandoned it. So you can take the equivalent of they had abandoned their unit tests, done only scenario-based GUI tests, and they could not get their test pass to pass. Why? Because when the scenario fails, there was always approximately 50 different check-ins that could have caused the failure. Um, And you end up spending dev. Let's say the test is provably saying the product's failing. The problem is, is that because you didn't define the failure at the moment the code integrated, you end up spending about 10 times the cost on diagnosing the the problem. So, yeah, this this would be a horrible idea. Ignoring the fact that GUI testing or GUI automation is absolutely um, one of the hardest things on the planet to do. Reminds me of a story. Yeah. Uh, okay. So on Xbox One, which was some little pockets of Agile uh, encompassed in a big cesspool of waterfall. Cesspool is wrong. It was a fun project. But what team was this? Xbox One. Oh, good. Um, we defined. We were very careful about defining like uh, what a BVT was and our levels of testing. We didn't use the pyramid as a metaphor. We could have, but. The BVT answered the question. Each level of testing answered a question. The unit test answered the question, is my code ready to check in? And the BVT answered the question, is this build worth investing any more testing effort on? So we wouldn't even run the next level of tests unless the BVT's passed. Wouldn't bother. I used those questions. I had another set of questions as well. And my set of questions were roughly equivalent to if this test suite passes, is the next test suite have an 80 to 90% chance of passing as well? So in other words, not only did I use it for a gate for things like check-in and things like that, but I'm like, no, I want a super fast suite that says whether or not it's worthwhile to begin the next suite. Yep. Yeah. And- Different levels of testing answered similar questions until it went to uh, beta users. So then recently, recently being like maybe six months ago, maybe longer because I can't tell time anymore, Noah Sussman uh, did a very clever thing, which makes a lot of sense. He inverted the pyramid and did basically the same thing answering these questions. Like if you look at the pyramid upside down, all 
basic functionality bugs should be caught by the unit tests. These are the levels of bugs we catch here. The only bugs that get to here are ones that have failed, have somehow passed all those things. Uh, I'll see if I can post a link to it. Yeah, so I, I think we're both saying the same thing, particularly yes, in the world of the, the modern tester, right? Calendar time is critical. You can't have your devs spending a whole lot of their time just running through your end-to-end -end scenarios to figure out what the hell bug they just checked in. You also can't have your automators spending all their time maintaining uh, extremely challenging um, GUI. Your automators? Suite. I don't know what. Yeah, I, I. I don't know what the crazy kids call these people nowadays. Either. I don't know either. I. I, um, <laughs> uh, I asked my team to write. Please write less automation. Help the devs write more. That is the way to go. Thank you. Do Actually, we, do, are, we, are we done with that? Yeah, Have we made our point. I, I don't think you liked our answer, but we're not here to give answers you like. We're here to give honest answers. I, and I, I, I understand uh, opinions. I understand I, the theory. Yeah. But, no, no, I. Me too. But running the regression suite is not the priority. No. Agreed. Okay. My stop writing automation post is uh, seven years old now. Yeah, I think it's. I think the way you just said it is the best way I've ever heard you say it. Um, because when you read it, it sounds like you're anti-automation, and and it's you're not. It's no. The people who write the automation should also be the people who wrote the code. I think so. Me too. One more question. This one from the Slack channel, one of the three .com. Contact uh, me or Percy on Twitter if you want to get added. But this is from uh, Danny Fott, the infamous Danny Fott. Uh, for an organization that is moving to doing testing in production, how important is it to have a data scientist participating? Does a data scientist ensure that sufficient data is available to show whether an application is having problems in production? So really, we have two questions here. One may be easier to answer than the other. As the data scientist, should you answer first? Or as the non-data scientist, should I answer first? I don't care. Would yeah. you like me to answer first? I, I want you to care. So <laughs> I'll give you my opinion as someone who, like for me, I, I'm in an organization that is moving to doing testing and production. Yep. And I don't have any data scientists on my team. Uh, we do have data scientists in the org that I can and will leverage as needed. But there are some interim steps that you can do being with just a little bit of math and statistics knowledge and the ability to use, or even better yet, the ability to use a search engine on the internet. You can get by, I think, for quite a while uh, in moving in that direction. What you really need help with in moving that direction is a nice partnership with operations or, or infra or DevOps, whoever is building your monitoring system mm -hmm. to figure out how you're going to leverage that and how, what are the ways you're going to use that to monitor system health, tests that run in production, uh, what happens when they fail to those fire alerts. Getting that built up in the first place is much more important than getting the deeper analytics that come from data science, in my opinion. When you're moving to testing and production, Right, the first thing that's going to happen, and by the way, um, 
I would say a good 50% of my data science team, my individual team, is on a problem similar to this. But it is entirely dependent on your maturity model on where you are with testing and production. Testing and production, uh, it has two interpretations. One is the, the monitoring um, stuff that you're talking about. The other is uh, the A-B testing paradigm. I've seen both of these things classified under testing or production. Mm-hmm. On A-B testing, yeah, you definitely want uh, a statistician to help you with the hypothesis testing. Mm-hmm. There's multiple flavors of data scientists. Do you need an ML for this? No, it's, it's, it's basic stats. For testing and production from a sense of uh, monitoring, do you need a data scientist? No. You can get away for a long time without one. Will one having one help accelerate and help avoid several problems? Yeah, it will. One of the most common problems, once you go to testing and production, the first problem is signal-to-noise ratios. How do, how do we set these thresholds? The, the first practice is you set it to be static values. But then you realize, oh, crap, this particular series is spiky. And, and uh, we, only, we only care if it's above the spike for 20 minutes. Well, the, then you go, okay, well, we'll just add another threshold that says don't alert anybody unless it's been above this spike for 20 minutes. But then the next problem that you run into is, oh, yeah, so we did good on reducing noise, but now uh, our service has been offline for 20 minutes. So when it's actually a real thing yeah. – <laughs> Data science is, is, is really helpful in terms of working through the signal-to-noise problem. I think answer to the question also depends on what is a data scientist. You need to go, and the, and the canonical answer is it's a statistician who works in Silicon Valley. But That's do you need... <laughs> your canonical answer. <laughs> do you... Do you need like to go hire someone you know, uh, who is a self-proclaimed or has a job current job title as data scientist, or do you just need someone on the team who understands statistics and can, and can tell when there are anomalies and, and depending and on the size of the team, like if if there is headcount here, right, and depending on the maturity level, just hire somebody that uh, is is has knowledge in this space one or two years out of college they will they will probably provide the right amount of ROI for this project right and i think that the biggest thing is they'll stop you from doing some stupid things it's really easy i see this happen all the time and i'm as brent knows i am not a data scientist but i can fake a lot of shit and I've read a lot about statistics. I once gave a talk on A-B testing and used all the right words and made Brent happy. Uh, I know enough about statistics, I'll say, that I can ask the right questions about metrics and understand how to figure out whether something is statistically significant. And, and, in, and actually, in the scenario I just mentioned, uh, 
the advice I just gave, like hire somebody who's just fresh out of college, you would be able to do a lot with that person because you know what data science can do and what it can't do to some degree. You may not know how to do it, but you understand the language and you understand what it can do. So you you would be able to to appropriately direct this individual. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of the other places where I've I've had this question answered, you have a bunch of people who um, data science is the equivalent of magic. I want to hire a magician too. <laughs> we have. <laughs> um, I and I, I don't think that's a healthy situation for a, a, a young data scientist. No, I don't think so. Another one, and you mentioned A/B testing, and uh, it's good to differentiate the fact that just synthetic tests, tests that you like, actual tests that you would run internally, run those against production, have them trigger an alert when they fail. That stuff does not need a data scientist, but. Whether it's A-B testing or just understanding more about customer usage, one thing I've found that I'm not great at yet, but I'm better than most uh, around me because I spend a lot of time studying this, is figuring out how to ask the right questions from data. Like, how, like that's where a data scientist can help. Like, hey, we want to know X. The data scientist is often the best person to figure out the right data you need to collect in order to figure out X. Brent, you would think. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, if if not, then don't hire them. No, there's a new phenomenon that's coming in uh, lately um, where I've encountered a lot of data scientists um, that kind of expect that all they're going to do is is machine um, model building, machine Mm -hmm. learning model building. Um, So... Uh, um, no one likes to clean the data. No one likes to um, do the data mining to figure those things out. Um, and to those guys, I essentially say, you know, too bad. That's not how. That's not how it works. The fun data science projects are messy. The valuable ones are messy. I wonder if. Just like if you were to ask 10 testers what they do, you may get 11 different answers. I wonder if right now, while the data science role is sort of growing and evolving, that it's sort of the same thing. It is. Uh, It is. Because some are, I know there are ML people. There are statisticians. There are people that ask the right questions and can design experiments. I think there's a lot of nuance and expertise in data science, just as there is in... Uh, software testing. So it took me a long time to come up with a definition of a tester's job. Um, I have greatly accelerated and I have a definition of a data scientist's job. And a data scientist's job is, is to understand the relationships between variables that positively drive action for the business. That's not bad. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, Brent just hurt his shoulder, patting himself on the back. But you will. You talked. So it is. I've I've now interviewed several hundred of them, um, and there is a lot of there's a lot of common complaints. There is a lot of uh, common expectations. All right. Um, da- several data scientists expect that um, they'll be doing everything in Python. Several data scientists expect. 
that someone else does the data engineering and the data mining. Um, this is what's typical in an academic environment. Right? Um, I am actually going to be doing a presentation in the, within the next month for um, one of my one of my professors just joined a brand new university. He wants to start a series that he's calling Analytics Think Tank. So I got to build a deck around, you know, uh, how Microsoft uses data science that's targeted the academic world. Right. One of the things I'm going to bring up is. Um, it, it, so the thing I'm – one of my favorite things, and I haven't quite figured out how I'm going to bring it up, but I'm going to bring it up. I think – and I, I thought this back in, in, in the old days that PhD CS students were useless. I'm finding PhD data science people are mostly useless. No, they're useful for writing papers but not for practical software applications. Yeah. I, I fully agree with the former. Yeah, it, it's it's not enough experience with the latter, but I'm not surprised. There is a big push uh, in society lately where where there's a lot of questioning around what's the value of the university education system. You got things like Coursera. Um, we're we're more open source than we've ever been. There's well, a lot of open content. We don't have time for a rant. Did you see my blog post ranting about their um, the security VP, security, the CTO or whatever of Equifax is blamed for the uh, their security breach? People were freaking out because she's a music major. <laughs> I, I, I got up on my horse because, one, I'm a music major, so a little, little defensive, but, two... Uh, a university is not a vocational school. It's a place where you're supposed to learn how to think. And many people do apply what they learned in their their actual degree towards uh, what they do, but many, many don't. And yeah. that's okay. Yeah, no, if, you, uh, if you want to go to school to get a specific job, go to a vocational school. Go to course, you know, uh, yeah, anyway. Big rant. There isn't a vocational data science school Yet. yet. Um, yet, but man, my crash course, part of my crash course in learning data science is courses on, in Coursera. Yeah, no, Coursera is a great thing. And I, I, I actually, I, I do think in, in, in probably in our lifetime, Alan, certainly in our children's lifetime, I think we're going to see a big shakeup in, in the education system. I hope so. But the the point I was uh, uh, trying to make, like if you have if you if you have the desire to to get into let's say data science or computer science um and work in industry um when you start off to college I do seriously question the value of pursuing bachelors all the way to PhD before you start going into industry, right? If you want your PhD, my, I, my recommendation would be 
stop at master's, maybe even stop at bachelor's, get a job in industry, work through that, then go back. I We could do a whole episode ranting on this, but we are unfortunately about out of time for today. Fair enough. I so totally agree with you. Uh, yeah, I, I've been going to leave it at that, but maybe we'll talk more about that another time. I think we need to uh, think hard about that. Oh, so anyway, answer the question, Danny. Uh, possibly. Your mileage may vary. It depends on the type of data scientist you want. Uh, do you need one? No. Will it be helpful? Yeah. Yeah. Um, should you evaluate the ROI based on where you are? Also, yes. Yeah. Figure out exactly, exactly what you want to do. But uh, you don't have to, to get the, the, the GOAT yeah. data science. Yeah. It's not magic. It's not, <laughs> oh, data scientist is here. All of our data will be perfect and we'll make awesome decisions right away. Not yeah. going to happen. Okay, everybody, uh, <laughs> if you're still here, uh, I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And we'll see you next time.